0: Before we jump into this episode, I want to give fair warning that this episode is particularly graphic in nature as it deals with the death of a young, innocent child, and we will be examining the autopsies of both Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman. This episode is not for the faint of heart, and certainly is not appropriate for young children. It may not be appropriate for you, either, depending on your ability to listen about harm that has befallen a child. So please, proceed with caution. It's nearing midnight on November 2nd of 2007, and Joy is absolutely exhausted. Her sister, Candy, and her husband, Steve, and Gina, the guest of honor, are the last stragglers. But they're helping clean up after the party, so she isn't about to say one word to them about vacating her house so that she can sit down and relax, which she wants to do so, so badly. The party, well, it was a huge success. It was Gina's birthday and her annual observance of the Day of the Dead, a 2 for oneer of sorts. See, Joy was born in New Orleans, and it's customary down in the Big Easy to acknowledge and commemorate anything that is worth celebrating. There is no town that loves a party more than New Orleans. And this was ingrained in Joy from birth. She worked for days to make it all come together, cooking, baking, shopping, which all takes a toll. And around 11.45 p.m., her final guests say their goodbyes. Hugs and thank yous are exchanged. And finally, she is able to close her front door behind them and exhale. The Huskers have a big football game tomorrow that she has every intention on watching down at the Green Onion Tavern with her friends and family. So sleep is mandatory. But just as Joy was able to take a load off, put her feet up, her doorbell rang. Thinking it may be her last guess and maybe they'd forgotten something, she stands up and opens the front door. It's the following morning, and Ken's two weeks over the road is finally coming to an end. He's just dropped off his last load in Indiana and is heading home to Omaha for some well-earned rest and relaxation, some home cooking, and for the love of God, some restful sleep, in an actual bed. He has two quick stops to make before heading to the house, one just over the border in Iowa to drop off the load paperwork, and then to drop his truck and trailer at his buddy's shop in Omaha. It's about 11 a.m. when he picks up his phone and scrolls through his contacts and finds Joy's number to let her know he's en route and might be able to meet up with her at the bar for the game. He calls the house, and Joy doesn't pick up. He then tries her cell. Same result, maybe she's left for the bar already, He thinks to himself, I'll just surprise her. He rolls into Omaha at around 12.30 p.m., drops off his truck, jumps in his car, which was stored at the lot when he was over the road, and proceeds to head to the house. He pulls into the driveway, grabs his travel bag, and heads to the front door of the house. The door appears to be unlocked, which is strange, he thinks. Joy doesn't leave the house unlocked when she's not home. Ken pushes the door open and lets out a horrified scream at the top of his lungs. Oh my God, oh my God! He's yelling and nearly loses his balance as he's reeling backwards. His heart is pounding in his chest. He can feel it against his chest and he's nearly hyperventilating as he fights to catch his breath. His face feels as if it's on fire. Tears flow from his tear ducts and run down his cheeks. What in the fuck? He collects himself momentarily and pulls his phone out of his pocket and dials 911. He simply cannot process what he's looking at. As he stares in horror, as the woman that he loves lies lifeless, face down, just beyond the front door. There's a massive amount of blood surrounding her body. And there are two knives, one sticking out of her neck just below the back of her head, and the other is plunged into the side of her neck. He is nauseous as he calls nine one one, and the dispatcher asks Ken what his emergency is. In between gasps for breath, he tells her, "My girlfriend's been murdered." The moment that detective dug her out, heard the details of the murders that had occurred at the Hunter's home on March 13th of 2008. The killer having used knives from the home and left them buried in the victim's necks. He immediately thought of the Joy Blanchard murder that had taken place a mere five months earlier. And there had not been an arrest made as of yet, which means that there is a killer on the loose in Omaha and Doug Harout doesn't believe in coincidences, at least not when it comes to crimes like these. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode five. As Detective Derek Moise is wrapping up his initial investigation of the nightmarish crime scene at the Hunter residence, The coroner's office has arrived in order to transport the bodies to the county morgue. Moist doesn't hang around to watch this happen, but instead heads home, his wife is long asleep as he quietly slips into bed next to her. He's thankful for that fact because he has no desire to retell what he has just had to endure for the last eight hours. He tries to shield his wife from the horrors of his job as much as possible, but it takes a toll. Having to internalize all of which he sees on a daily basis. And these crimes, Thomas's murder in particular, is almost too much to bear. He closes his eyes as the images of the day play over and over in his mind. He desperately wishes he could turn off his brain, but his mind will continue to churn over and over what he has observed as he attempts to unravel just exactly what happened at the Hunter home and why. These answers will not come to him while he lies in his bed as he fights himself to find sleep before he has to get up to go and observe the autopsies of both Shirley Sherman and Thomas Hunter. There is one thing that he is certain of, however, and that is that there is a child killer loose on the streets of Omaha. And it is this very reason that he accepted this position of homicide detective. To catch the bastard who did it. Every TV station in the greater Omaha area greeted its morning viewers with the terrifying news of the brutal double homicide that had just taken place, where such things simply are not supposed to happen. The reports of the crime do what they are prone to do, which is instill fear and panic in the hearts and minds of the good citizens of Omaha. While the details of exactly what transpired inside the Hunter home are sketchy at best, the reporters assigned to the case have begun doing their homework and have pestered law enforcement enough to get a few of the details. The most unsettling of those details being not one, but two people had been killed inside. And one of them was an unnamed child. The city of Omaha is abuzz and not in a good way. Every parent will be watching their child much more intently for the foreseeable future. Some parents will choose not to send their kids to school at all, electing to keep them home. But they're collectively being forced to contemplate in light of the nature of the home invasion, is my home even to be considered a safe haven? As word of the tragedy spreads through news reports, newspaper articles, and conversations around water coolers at work, the people of Omaha are wondering the exact same thing that the cops are, which is, why? Not having some kind of answer to this question, not even an inkling, will set the city of Omaha on edge, as the city will wait in earnest and hope that the police can quickly make an arrest of this killer that is terrorizing them. You can be sure of one thing, as the facts of the case will begin to come to light over the next several weeks, and that is that everyone in Omaha, and I mean everyone, will be locking their doors at night. Detectives Moise and out make their way over to the county morgue, arriving at approximately 9.30 a.m. after attending the morning briefing at the station. Both men learn that OPD is developing two strong leads. As a description of the potential killer and what he drove have started to come into focus. Detectives and patrol officers are handed out assignments on what they are expected to do on this day. At 9.45 a.m., the chief medical examiner of Douglas County, Dr. Jerry Jones, walks into the room, flanked by two pathologist assistants. Also present is a crime lab tech that will be photographing the autopsies as Dr. Jones proceeds through them. Dr. Jones scrubs in and instructs his assistants to unzip the body bag that contains Shirley Sherman's remains. Moist looks around the autopsy room. As the assistants prepare the body for the autopsy, he sees that there are several x-rays displayed on various x-ray film viewers mounted on the walls in the room. Moist stares at the ghostly image of the knife plunged into Shirley's neck as he waits for Jones to start. The silence in the room is broken by two things. The clicking sound of the evidence text camera as she shoots every conceivable shot that she can of Shirley's remains, and Dr. Jones starting the recording device as he begins the autopsy itself. Now, I'm not going to read the entire autopsy report because, well, we'll focus on what's in there that has evidentiary value. We will, however, post the full autopsy reports on our Patreon. So, if you're so inclined to check that out, or you just want to see what an actual autopsy report looks like, head over to www.patreon.com backslash defense diaries. Dr. Jones begins the post-mortem examination of Shirley Sherman. The body is delivered to the morgue and closed in a black morgue bag secured at the zipper by a small red plastic lock. Prior to the autopsy, x-rays are obtained of the head, neck, chest, and abdomen. These reveal the presence of a large knife embedded in and perforating the neck. The body is that of a well-developed, well-nourished white female, measuring 66 inches in length and weighing an estimated 170 to 180 pounds. The body is dressed in dark blue and white athletic shoes, short white sweat socks, sweatpants with an elastic waist, in a cutaway short-sleeved blue T-shirt, a white bra, white underpants, and a blue and white bandana. There are eyeglasses on her face. The T-shirt is blood-soaked, and there are multiple defects in the upper part of the T-shirt, predominantly on the right, corresponding to multiple stab wounds in the neck. Around the neck is a gold metal, small chain-link necklace with a gold metal heart-shaped pendant. On the right finger is a gold metal ring the a black stone. The hands are enclosed in brown paper sacks, secured at the wrist by gray duct tape. Now, if you're wondering why the hands have been bagged, and have guessed that it's probably so that any potential evidence, say from underneath Shirley's fingernails will be preserved, well, you nailed it, because that's exactly why. Jones continues. There is a large silver-colored kitchen-type knife which perforates the neck obliquely from the right lateral neck through the left posterilateral neck. The knife is inserted in the right lateral neck to the guard and three and one half inches of the knife blade are exposed on the left. The knife is withdrawn from the neck. The knife is a single edged blade which tapers uniformly to a point. The knife measures 13 inches in overall length with the handle measuring five inches in length and the knife blade measuring eight inches in length. The entrance defect of the knife in the right lateral neck measures two inches in length, and the exit defect in the left posterolateral neck measures one inch in length. In the skin to the right of the anterior lateral and the right lateral neck are 18 additional stab wounds, varying from 3 16 of an inch to one and one quarter inches in length. Most of the stab wounds are oriented in a traverse direction. Stab wounds variably penetrate into the skin or through the skin deeply into the underlying soft tissue of the neck. In the skin, to the left of the lateral neck, is an additional transversely oriented stab wound, measuring 9 sixteenths of an inch in length. This stab wound penetrates through the skin into the underlying soft tissue. Subsequent internal examination of the neck reveals extensive hemorrhage in the soft tissue of the neck, in multiple penetrations of the soft tissue of the neck by the stab wounds the bilateral jugular veins are severed the right internal and external carotid arteries are severed just distal to the bifurcation of the common carotid artery into its internal and external branches the left common carotid artery is severed approximately to its nearest origin and from the arc of the aorta There is also a stab wound penetration in the right side of the larynx, one half inch below the vocal cords. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, good God, Bob, we didn't need all that detail. Well, yes, you did. And I wouldn't say that is always the case when it's obvious what the cause of death is. You don't have to be a trained physician to know what killed both Shirley and Thomas, as it's patently obvious. However, as this story continues, and down the road... When Dr. Anthony Garcia is arrested, the state will proffer the theory that the killer appeared to have a firm grasp on all things anatomical, and that the killer appeared to have used great precision when slaying his victims. Now, we will get into this area in much greater detail down the road, but I can tell you at this juncture, 18 stab wounds to the right side of the neck seems anything but surgical, but maybe that's just me. Back to the autopsy. Jones continues. There's a linear oblique abrasion of the skin of the lower back, measuring one and one three-quarters inches by three-sixteenths of an inch. There is rigor mortis present. There is liver mortis present in the skin of the posterior aspects of the body. Now, at this juncture, Jones begins his internal examination of the body, which we do not need to delve into, as it provides no answers. After completing the internal examination, Dr. Jones summarizes the cause of death. As such, the cause of death of this 58-year-old white female is hemorrhage, secondary to multiple stab wounds of the neck, including a large perforating stab wound of the neck, with the knife still embedded in the neck. The stab wound penetrates the skin and soft tissues of the neck, with severing of the bilateral jugular veins and the carotid arteries, and penetration of of the right side of the larynx so what did we learn aside from the cause of death which we already knew well what is most curious to me is not what dr jones noted in his examination but instead what he did not note which is that there were no ligature marks on the arms or the wrists of shirley sherman now i wasn't the only one extremely curious about the wrists as doug Harout specifically notes in his report that he didn't observe any injuries to the victim's hands or wrists. If you recall from the last episode, I made a point of trying to get your headspace into the morbid area of trying to figure out, logistically, how one person could have committed these murders. To this day, I still cannot wrap my mind around how one man could have casually walked into that house and caused that type of carnage, with knives taken from the knife block in the kitchen without one or both of the victims being restrained. And what is crystal clear from the autopsy is that Shirley Sherman was never tied up by the killer. The mystery of how continues. During the examination, when the paper bags were removed from Shirley's hands, the evidence tech took fingernail scrapings and swabs from both of the hands. The tech also used a UV light machine to check the entirety of Shirley's body, all the clothing and everything that was removed from her as well in order to attempt to discover any trace evidence. Evidence was also collected from the vaginal area in order to submit it to the lab along with a rape kit. DNA swabs are collected from any area of the body that appeared to have dry blood on it. As the hope remains that the perpetrator may have been injured during the commission of the crime and potentially left a DNA profile. Harout took note that the knife appeared to have been inserted from right to left and from front to back. Now, I'm no doctor, nor am I a cop, but those wound patterns would seem to indicate to me that if the killer was right-handed, that he was standing behind Shirley as he was stabbing her. Dr. Jones concluded the autopsy and Moise and Harout left the autopsy room to catch a breather. While Moise and Harout were observing the autopsies, Officer Linda Yetz was assigned to head back to the crime scene and stand by with the crime lab unit, who was still processing the scene. As soon as she arrived, she was told to interview Jeff, Shirley's son, who had also arrived at the crime scene. Yetz finds Jeff standing at the intersection of 54th and Davenport Street. She confirms Jeff's identity and gets his contact information and wastes no time in getting to the meat of the matter. She first asks him who he thought might have done this to his mother. Jeff did not have to think very long before answering. He tells Yetz that the only person that he knew that was mad at his mother or that might be holding a grudge was his sister Kelly's boyfriend. Yet, is feverishly taking notes as Jeff continues telling her
1: what he thinks. My mom didn't like him because he had broken Kelly's jaw about a year ago. Last March, as a matter of fact. After that happened, my mom helped Kelly get an order of protection against him. He was obviously pissed off about that. I hadn't talked to my sister since February, so I have no idea what's going on with those two right now. Jeff supplies Yetz with his sister's address and phone number. Back when I was getting divorced last year, my mom helped me out and let me move into the little coach house behind her house. Yetz then asks if he's familiar with the hunters. Well, yes and no. I know of them because I came to help my mom clean their house a few times to help her out. I know my sister also came and helped her clean the hunter's house a few times, too. I know she knows the Hunter's address. I know that for a fact. This is getting more and more promising.
0: Yet, thanks to herself, we've got a potential motive, and this boyfriend guy might just have known that Shirley was going to be at the house on Thursday.
1: It was promising, to say the least. Jeff kept talking. Come to think of it, I think my mom might have had her own order of protection against the boyfriend. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure she did. Another thing, both my sister and this guy are using meth. You know, if I'm being totally honest here, neither me or my sister has a real good relationship with my mom. My mom was mad at Kelly because she was still with the boyfriend and she was using with him and making bad choices for her kid. My mom and Kelly were constantly arguing, but. Yeah, I I can't think of anyone else who hates my mom enough to kill her.
0: Jeff tells Yetz that's all he's got. She thanks him and terminates the interview. Also standing around observing was Dana Boyle, one of the eyewitnesses that the officers had spoken to last night. You remember Dana Boyle, right? But Yetz, feeling as if she is on a roll, asks Boyle if she can go over her initial statement again. You know to see if she recalled anything else. Boyle proceeds to tell Yetz substantially the same story about seeing Thomas get home from school and wondering why he was wearing shorts in the middle of March and the light blue or silver CRV stopping and starting, stopping and starting repeatedly in front of the Hunter's home. Today, however, in retrospect, she feels like the driver of the vehicle was, quote, on a mission, end quote,
2: To think, why why did I think he was a smart person? So there may have been glasses on him, um, and I do remember it was short hair. It was a sh- short hair. I don't remember sideburns, um, and for some reason I put him. I also made a judgment that day too as being a uh, someone from another country. I'm not saying it was not dark skin. That I thought it was something, there must have been something that made me think like Middle Eastern looking, maybe a very light Hispanic, but very clean cut. His hair had to have been very short because it was clean cut. Um, He did not look big. His face did not seem big to me. And all I got was a glimpse, and then back of the head and side profile. I got the glimpse coming around the corner, mm-hmm. and then he kept doing the side as he was looking for addresses, and then I got the eye in the rearview mirror, but I still can't recall if there were glasses or not. Um, I would put him, if I was to guess the type from being in a car, now I know you can't tell from a car, but just like the body stature, you know, would have been six foot or under, under. I don't know if maybe the person I saw had glasses on, which made me think that there was a bigger nose. I don't know. I mean, my the person that I remember seeing was, I mean, like I could say maybe even Italian, uh, Hispanic, light Hispanic, Middle Eastern looking. I do recall saying that he had a bigger nose before. I don't remember the hairline note being that far back, I don't remember that big of a forehead. I I, I put him at a a young age. I put him, you know, in mid-20s. And, you know, like Hispanic Middle Eastern, he didn't have, like, a round... He didn't look scruffy. He didn't look dangerous. And I know that everyone's version of dangerous looking is different. He didn't look dangerous to me. He looked like
0: a a a nice decent-looking guy. She reiterated that the license plate had a peach or pink color with writing above the color part of the plate. Yetz asks her if there's anything else that she can remember. Anything. No detail is too small. Boyle takes a moment to think and then tells Yetz that the license plate frame on the rear was like one of the frames that you get when you buy a car from a dealer. It had writing on it, but she couldn't make out what it had said. Yetz thanks her and terminates the interview. Yetz then heads into the hunter's home. The techs are still processing the scene. She notes the same things Moist noted. At this point, the bodies of the victims have been transported to the morgue. Only the large pools of blood remain as an awful reminder of where each of their lives had come to an end. Yet's continues to make her way through the home. You know, a second set of eyes and all. She doesn't notice anything of note until she reaches the table in the kitchen nook. Shirley's purse and jacket are still there. She digs around in the purse and sees Shirley's cell phone, in a small address book. She pulls the book out of the purse and flips through it, and she knows what name she's looking for, that of Kelly's boyfriend. And there it is, with his phone number listed right next to it. Hmm, interesting, she thinks to herself. She then checks the pockets of the brown jacket hanging over the back of the chair and pulls out a pocket knife. Hey, whose jacket is this? She yells out to whoever may be listening. One of the tech answers, It's Shirley's. Yes, my friends, Officer Yetz is on the roll. Back at the county morgue, the autopsy of Tom Hunter is about to begin. Beyond the general discomfort that most of us may experience observing a human body being dissected, try to imagine, if you will, being in the room the autopsy of this sweet young boy. We truly don't attempt to place these thoughts in your minds as you listen with the intent to wring the pathos out of the circumstance. But instead, we do it because when you are listening to our podcast, we don't want you to ever forget that these are not just names of people that I'm reading from a piece of paper, but in fact they were living, breathing souls that loved and were loved And are now lost to all of us. The human condition is such that to truly understand what others may have felt in a particular circumstance, you must be capable of empathy. It's the only way to truly be able to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. That being said, maybe you have a better idea of what Moise is feeling as Dr. Jones prepares to perform Tom's autopsy. Much like Shirley's autopsy, we will only cover what's pertinent. At 12.30 p.m., Dr. Jones begins the autopsy of Thomas Hunter. Prior to the autopsy, x-rays are obtained of the head, neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. The body is that of a well-developed, well-nourished, white male child, measuring 59 inches in length and weighing an estimated 90 pounds. There are no shoes or socks on the body. The boy is dressed in outer black athletic shorts with two white stripes on each side. Green and blue plaid boxer type underpants, orange boxer type underpants, inner gray boxer type underpants, and two short short-sleeved black t-shirts. The outer t-shirt has been partially cut away. The shirts are blood soaked. The underpants are fecal soiled. The hands are enclosed. In brown paper sack secured at the wrist by gray duct tape. There is brown scalp hair measuring up to 4 inches in length. The teeth are natural and appear in good repair. There are braces in the upper and lower teeth. There is food in the nose and mouth. There is a contusion abrasion of the lower lip measuring 3 eighths of an inch. There is a large knife which perforates the neck right to left and slightly from front to back. And one and one quarter inches of the knife blade protrude from the skin on the left side of the neck. The knife is removed from the neck. Stab entrance wound in the skin of the right lateral neck measures five eighths of an inch in length, and the stab exit wound in the skin of the left posterolateral neck measures nine sixteenths of an inch in length. The knife is a single-edged knife measuring nine inches in length and nine sixteenths of an inch wide and the blade tapers on the sharp edge to a point. The knife blade itself, measured to the guard, is five inches in length. In the skin of the right anterior lateral and right lateral neck are four additional stab wounds. Three of these stab wounds penetrate superficially into the skin and measure one eighth of an inch, one quarter of an inch, and one quarter of an inch in length. The fourth stab wound measures nine-sixteenths of an inch in length and penetrates through the skin into the underlying soft tissue. There's an abrasion of the skin of the right mid-jaw, measuring seven-sixteenths of an inch by one-eighteenth of an inch. There is one stab wound in the right lower anterior lateral neck, measuring one-half an inch in length. In the right upper anterior medial neck is a stab wound, measuring three-sixteenths of an inch in length, which penetrates superficially into the skin. In the skin of the left upper lateral neck are two stab wounds measuring three-eighths of an inch and seven-sixteenths of an inch in length which both penetrate the skin into the underlying soft tissue. Subsequent internal examination reveals extensive hemorrhage in the soft tissue of the bilateral neck and multiple penetrations of the stab wound into the soft tissues of the neck. The bilateral jugular veins are severed both common carotid arteries are also severed near their bifurcations into the internal and external carotid arteries. There is rigor mortis present, there is liver mortis present in the skin of the posterior aspect of the body. Jones then summarizes the cause of death as such. The cause of death of this 11-year-old white male is multiple stab wounds of the neck and including a large perforating stab wound of the neck With the knife still embedded in the neck, with penetrations of the skin and soft tissues of the neck, and severing of the bilateral jugular veins and carotid arteries. So fucking brutal. With the autopsies now concluded, Moise is now hyper focused on trying to determine just exactly who was the target. And it's not just Moise, it's every cop from OPD that has been assigned to work this case. He heads back to the station to see what else has developed in the last five hours. One development is that Omaha PD has reached out to Mary Rommelfanger, Dana Boyle, and Catherine Swanson to inquire if they would be willing to sit down with a sketch artist that the department uses to create composite sketches of potential suspects. All three of these women who had laid eyes on the stranger in one form or another just the day prior readily agree, and are all more than willing to assist the police in apprehending the person who has rattled their neighborhood and the city of Omaha to its core. Paul Medine is another of the eyewitnesses from the neighborhood that got a good look at the stranger. Maybe the best look at him. But due to work obligations, he wasn't going to be able to join the ladies for the group effort and would have to sit with the artist later in the evening. All three of the women sit with the sketch artist for hours, taking turns describing the facial features as best as they can recollect. The shape of the face, round or oval. Hair color and length. Size and shape of the nose. Eye color and shape. Was facial hair present? Was he wearing glasses? And any other distinguishing thing that they can recall. As the women continue to go round and round comparing and contrasting what each of them had independently seen, one thing weighs heaviest on all of their minds. And that was that they understood that this is a composite sketch that would be released to the public, and that everyone in Omaha would be looking at it and racking their brains to determine if the sketch resembled someone that they knew or had seen at some point in their lives. So they knew they had to be as accurate as possible with their description, because the last thing that any of them want is for the wrong man to be identified. Now, most of us have never been in the position that these women are currently in, where you are trying to describe what someone looks like so accurately to an artist that they are able to generate a drawing that reflects what is in your mind's eye. Think about it. Even those people that you are most familiar with, the people that you know every nook and cranny of their face, try descriptively verbalizing what you were picturing in your mind. It's incredibly tough to do. Now factor in that all three of these women really only caught fleeting glimpses of the stranger. And further, beyond just mere curiosity, at the time that they observed him, they had no reason to believe that they would be required to commit what the stranger looked like to memory. The women do the best that they can with the artist, and the artist does the best that he can to render an image that accurately reflects the collective memories of these three witnesses. Now, we will check back in with them as the investigation continues, as the police will circle back to inquire as to whether they believe, they being the three witnesses, that the sketch is a good representation of the man that they saw. Later in the evening, Paul Medine comes into the station and sits with the artist as well. At that point, the sketch was near completion. So Medine was not having to work with the artist from scratch, but rather could examine what was already drawn to see if it matched up with what he remembered about the appearance of the stranger. By the 15th of March, the composite sketch will be in the hands of all the news outlets for dissemination to the public at large. This sketch, coupled with the ever-growing reward that will be offered, will keep Omaha PD very, very busy tracking down potential leads over the next days, weeks, and months. Many of these leads will lead the police to potential suspects, many of them not so much. Will Omaha PD pick up on what a woman named Angie is putting down? Are the Blanchard and Hunter cases connected? We start digging in on those burning questions and more on the next episode of Defense Diaries.